Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Special episode 2. A load of baloney from Bologna, part 1. As I mentioned on the last episode, this is a special cheating episode. Why do I say cheating? Well, because I haven't got much time to put out an episode in this period because I've got a lot of work going on. And part of this work is a translation, a guide to the city of Bologna. So I thought, rather than not put out an episode at all, why not just put in an episode about what I'm translating? So hey presto, here is the episode. For those of you who haven't heard other episodes of A History of Italy, this one could be a little bit more dry. I usually try and look for something a bit more quirky to talk about, but not having had time, I hope this one won't be too boring. Let's start with a quote from Dictionary.com. Thinly dressed with yellow mustard and slapped between two slices of white bread, Bologna is found in the lunchboxes of many American youth. But, what does the cold cut have to do with baloney, a slang word that implies nonsense? The bologna sausage is traditionally made from odds and ends of chicken, turkey, beef or pork and is similar to the Italian mortadella, which originated in the Italian city of Bologna. The inexpensive deli meat is often pronounced and spelt baloney. The slang word took off in the 1930s thanks to Alfred E. Smith, who served as the governor of New York four times and was the first Roman Catholic mayor party nominee to run for president. He frequently used the term baloney in reference to Washington's bureaucracy. So there you are. Thank you to dictionary.com. Now, this brings us from baloney to Bologna. Bologna is the regional capital of the Emilia-Romagna region. Maybe what I could do in future is a special episode on the regions of Italy and talk a little bit about them. But for the moment, let's just say that Emilia-Romagna is one of the 20 Italian regions. The regions are sort of halfway between a British region and a US state because they do have a certain amount of autonomy but not as much as a U.S. state does. Now, Emilia-Romagna, although it is a single region, can actually culturally be divided between Emilia to the east and Romagna to the west with the seaside part of the region. The Emilia part comprising, among others, of Piacenza, Parma, Reggio Emilia, Modena and Bologna is known for its very rich fatty food. Besides mortadella or bologna or bologna, another famous food from the area is parma ham, also now internationally known as prosciutto or prosciutto. Another incredibly famous food from the area is parmigiano reggiano, and you must never refer to it as parmesan cheese because there's all the imitation parmesan cheese around. The one true original hard cheese is parmigiano reggiano. Now allow me a slight digression on how to deal with discussions with an Italian about food. My suggestion is, don't do it. Especially if you're British and you get into a discussion with an Italian about food, 
Just hang your head in shame and agree with everything. Otherwise, you'll never hear the end of it. It's no use talking about how good a steak and kidney pie could be, how satisfying a nice plate of bangers and mash or smoke kippers in the morning. You will not be right. So, having avoided the discussion about food, but we could also do an episode on that sometimes, let's go and talk about the city of Bologna. Now, this episode comes out just after the celebration of the 25th of April, Liberation Day, the day in which in Italy we celebrate the liberation in April of 1945 from the fascists and the Nazis. Bologna is a very good example in this sense because it is one of the most important Italian northern cities which received the golden medal for resistance after the Second World War. So resistance is a very important part of Bologna and Emilia and in general northern Italian culture. But on to the city. Human presence in the Bologna area can be traced back to the Paleolithic, but the first documented archaeological settlement belonged to the Neolithic around 5000 BCE. During this period, we can observe the start of an agricultural and animal breeding society that had tools made out of wood, bone, polished rock and ceramics. Starting from the 18th century BCE, bronze started to be introduced and substituted stone in the production of tools. After the 9th century BCE, the Etruscans first appeared in the plains of Bologna. Between the 6th and 4th century BCE, the Bolognese area settlement was called Felizina, in Etruscan Velzna. It became a flourishing city. It grew culturally and economically, and became one of the primary hubs of the Etruscan presence in the Po Valley. During the 6th century BCE, the Po Valley was invaded by Celtic tribes. The land of Felsina was occupied by the Boi Gauls, who had not yet developed an urban culture and so preferred more sparse habitations around the farmable lands close to woods. For this reason, the urban center of Felsina, after these Gauls, was renamed Bona. In the year 88 BCE, the Boninienses obtained Roman citizenship and Bononia became a municipality. In the two following centuries, paved roads were built in the city, as well as sewers, baths, public buildings, a theatre with seating for 5,000 and an aqueduct that distributed to the city the water channelled from the Setta River with an underground system that was 20 kilometres long. At the start of the Common Era, Bononia had an estimated population of 20 to 25,000 people and further improved with a reconstruction after a fire in 53 CE. Upon the orders of Emperor Nero, who was only 16 at the time, the baths were rebuilt and the theatre was expanded. The Bononia community lived off of farming, craftwork and trade. The farms produced cereals, fruit, oil and wine, as well as breeding animals especially pigs, which permitted the production of cured meats. There you are. So the mortadella in the Bologna goes way back. Similarly to other Roman settlements, the demographic increase and the residential expansion in the suburban areas continued until the 2nd century. Then, starting from the 3rd century, an exceptional convergence of depressive factors 
determine the irreversible decline of the Western Roman Empire. Meanwhile, the number of Christians increased. The persecution ordered against them by Emperor Diocletian at the beginning of the 4th century also hit the community in Bologna, whose first martyrs were Vitalis and Agricola. However, within a short time, Emperor Constantine's Edict of Milan in 313 allowed the Bolognese to have their first bishop, Saint Zama. The eighth bishop at the beginning of the century was Petronius. He was buried in the church of Saint Stephen, which he had devised, and a cult to him arose in this location until he became the patron saint of the city in the 12th century. Due to the decadence of the Roman imperial system and the barbarian invasions starting at the end of the 4th century, the urban area of Bologna was reduced and surrounded by strong circle of walls, made with large blocks of chalk, selenite, also known as moonstone, because of the way the surface shines as the light hits it. The blocks were taken from old constructions. The walls enclosed around three-fifths of the old Roman city. In the year 387, St. Ambrose oversaw the positioning of four crosses in external remaining points, as if to surround them with a religious protection. And it seemed that it worked, because thus guarded Bologna was able to resist the Visigoths of King Alaric as they made their way down to sack Rome in 410. With the fall of the Western Roman Empire, Bononia went through a period of impoverishment, but then saw a slight improvement under the Ostrogoth reign of King Theodoric, who placed his capital in Ravenna, not far away. However, during the course of the 6th century, the city was involved in the long and devastating war started by the Eastern Emperor Justinian to retake the Italian peninsula, the Gothic War, which we have spoken about. The emperor's short-lived victory was followed by the arrival of the Lombards, led by their king Alboin in 568, who was not able to take the city of Bononia, having been stopped along the banks of the Soltenna-Panaro river. This is when one of the most important borders in the period of Italian history was set, the one between the reign of the Lombards, Lombardy, and Romania, the land of the Romans that would become Romagna. Although it had not actually been invaded yet, Bologna found itself on the front line. In 727, Bologna was finally conquered by the Lombards. Later, in 774, after the Franks defeated the Lombards, the city was given back, air quotes, to the Pope who had it run by a duke, usually tied to the Ravenna nobility. Listeners will remember that the air quotes on given back is because in theory it belonged to the Byzantine Empire but now it was being given to the new papal state. This situation lasted until the end of the 9th century, when the city was included in the Kingdom of Italy, ruled by a dynasty of counts who held influence over Bologna until the start of the 12th century. Meanwhile, the city started to experience the first symptoms of a general awakening of activity and exchange, which resulted in an increase in population, encouraged by the arrival in the farmlands of a workforce and landowning lords. Bononia now seemed to want to recapture its role as a crossroads, trying to expand and safeguard the great communication routes of the peninsula. 
To this day, Bologna is a very important hub in the north, although sometimes we refer to it as the bottleneck, because if you're going to the seaside or heading south, your bounds are going to have to queue in Bologna. Towards the end of the 11th century, in Bologna, they started to rediscover and study Roman law, as set out in the Code of Justinian. Thanks to the fame of illustrious scholars such as Peppo and Irnerius, soon young people from all of Europe came to study the codes, the interpretation, and the content of Roman law. This was how the School of Bologna was founded, the first university in the Western world, and the model for all future university foundations. In 1115, with the death of the Countess Matilda of Canossa, and we're going to do a whole episode on her, don't worry, the Bolognese rose up against the imperial representatives and destroyed the palace in which they had their offices. On the 15th of May of the following year, Emperor Henry V of Franconia, while trying to consolidate his authority and power in the peninsula, forgave the Concives, the Bolognese citizens, and issued a document setting out a series of rights that, according to tradition, were the first legitimization of the communes. Now, obviously, every city and every area is always claiming to be the first of something, and, and traditionally, one of the first communes was Amalfi, but let's leave Bologna this credit. Indeed, this document was considered the first official recognition of the commune of Bologna. Some decades later, the local noble families, in constant contrast with each other, started to build various towers, defensive structures, and symbols of prestige. The city turned into a real forest of towers. In particular, the towers of Garizenda and Asinelli have become a symbol of Bologna. There's a bit of a funny story there, because they were competing to go higher and higher, but at a certain point, one of the towers started to lean a bit and had to stop, so the other one won out. Today, if you go and visit Bologna, you can climb the rickety staircase to the top of the towers and get a wonderful view of Bologna, the Apennines and the surrounding countryside. Unless, of course, you're in the middle of a traditional Po Valley fog. The Peace of Constance in 1183 put an end to the struggle between Frederick I Barbarossa and the communes of the First Lombard League, who had defeated him in 1173 at Legnano, of which Bologna was a member. The peace coincided with the great demographic and economic development of the city, which, at the start of the 13th century, completed the submission of the Contado, the surrounding countryside. The city demolished an entire district to create the Palazzo del Comune, the communal palace, in 1203, and the adjacent square, the modern-day Piazza Maggiore. After a long struggle with the aristocrats, the merchant class was able to take control of the government They were organized in guilds and they issued the statutes, a series of laws by which the citizens had to abide. They regulated all aspects of public life. For example, there was a clause which obliged everyone to build a portico in front of private houses. This was when Bologna started to become the city of porticos that were privately owned but for public use. To this day, many of them have been conserved to the point that Bologna can now boast around 40 kilometers of them. Indeed, it is a city where you can go for a walk without an umbrella, even on a rainy day, because you can just stay under the porticos that now are full of designer shops.
At the beginning of the 13th century, the autonomy of the communes was contested by Frederick II, grandson of Barbarossa. So the Second Lombard League was formed, of which Bologna was an important member. After years of war between the federated communes and those loyal to the emperor, in 1249, in Fossalta near Modena, the illegitimate son of the emperor Enzo was captured and taken to Bologna, where he remained in comfortable imprisonment for 23 years until his death. In 1257, after a year of preparation, the Paradise Law was issued, freeing the serfs. 5,855 people were tied to the land and without the status of free men were freed by the commune at the cost of 54,014 Bolognese liras, 8 liras for those under 14 and 10 for those over without distinction between men and women. Already we see the seeds of a little bit of socialism in the city. With this act, Bologna was one of the first and doubtless the first among the most important communes to abolish serfdom thus attempting to erase the last inheritance of the feudal age. The liberation of the serf caused an increase in tax income for the commune since free men were required to pay taxes. I wonder if they were perhaps regretting that afterwards. In 1278, Emperor Rudolf of Habsburg granted the authority over Bologna to the Pope, who exercised power through his papal legates. In the 14th century, the city went through a period of decline. The struggles among the factions and the overwhelming power of certain families, such as the Pepoli, undermined the possibility to run the commune and culminated in the great overthrow of Zapolino in 1325. After their victory at Zapolino, the Modernese arrived at the gates of Bologna, destroying on their way the castles of Crespellano, Zola, Samoggia and Zola and Castelfranco, Piumazzo and the Locks and the Savena and Casalecchio rivers, which to this day allow the diversion of the river towards the city. They did not attempt to storm the walls, but were content to make fun of the losers for a couple of days running some races outside the walls and returning to Modena in the end with a bucket stolen from a well as a trophy. After the defeat and the humiliation, the decision was made to assign the rule of the city to the lord and papal legate Bertrando del Poggio in 1327, who commissioned a large fortified palace in the area of the Galliera Gate to be the new seat of the Pope on his return from Avignon. Indeed, more history-keen listeners will know that the papacy, after being, let's say, banished to Avignon, was for a period in Bologna. To decorate it, he called some of the most prestigious artists of the day, such as, for example, Giotto. However, his bad government led to an angry mob destroying the building. After Bertrando del Poggetto was sent away, the reconciliation with the church came about with the recognition of Taddeo Pepoli as the representative of the papacy in Bologna. His government ended with his death and the arrival of the plague in the city in 1348, which killed three-fifths of the population. Two years later, the sons of Taddeo, Giacomo and Giovanni, were forced to hand the government of the city over to the Visconti family of Milan. The following ten years marked the rule of their tyrannical lieutenant, Giovanni da Oleggio. 
The city was saved by the intervention of the papal legate, Egidio Albornoz, who, as a sign of his affection for Bologna, had the Collegio di Spagna built. After the revolt in 1376 against the papal legate Guglielmo di Noelet, the city obtained a certain degree of autonomy from the church. At a certain point, they were probably just tired of all the rebellions, which they decided to celebrate by erecting a church to the patron. And so, in 1390, the first stone of San Petronio, the Basilica of St. Petronius, was laid. In this period, the city went through a phase of renaissance, marked by the minting of the Bolognino d'Oro, the gold coin of Bologna, and the construction of the Palazzo della Mercanzia. On the 17th of March, 1401, after two years of intrigue, Giovanni Bentivoglio was able to have himself elected perpetual gonfalonier by the commune of Bologna. After only a few months, he was deposed and killed by the Milanese. This was the first attempt at domination by the family, who was only successful at imposing a signoria, a lordship, later in the century, when Giovanni's grandson Amnibole was able to rid the city of the influence of the Milanese. Sante and Giovanni II Bentivoglio ushered in a period of intense artistic activity, helped by a long period of peace. That brought Bologna to the end of what we would call the Middle Ages and the start of the Modern Age. This is that interesting period of intrigue and subterfuge and Machiavellian doings which have made Italy so famous and lots of films and books have been written about. So we'll leave Bologna there for the moment. Next week, we'll finish off with the modern age and go to the contemporary period. And that will be that for our little Bologna series. Hopefully by then I'll have a little bit more time and go back to Charlemagne. But we're not as worried about him this time. I mean, he's been crowned, he's sitting there happily in Italy, I think he can wait for us a little bit. So we might just stick in a special episode, perhaps an interview episode, or even maybe a couple interview episodes. We'll see. As always, thank you very, very much for listening. This week, I would really like to thank our first two Apple reviewers, and those are CountFox27 and Chinese Girl's Husband, who gave two really, really lovely reviews. Thank you so much. It really means a lot. Remember that, like them, you can subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can uh, send, you can drop us an email, hello at ahistoryofitaly.com. At the same URL, historyofitaly.com, you can click through to our social media and to our YouTube page, where this week you'll find a little documentary on the Cervi brothers, an important symbol of the resistance in Reggio Emilia. So go on and have a look at that. Thanks again very much for listening, and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts. Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. 
Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy. And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com and find out how to submit your show.